Let's read God's Word together as we find it in the book of Acts and chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, it's on page uh, 1115 in the Church Bible, and we're going to read from verse 1. Uh, we are looking this morning uh, once again for our communion season uh, at First Thessalonians chapter 3, and uh, this passage in Acts gives us the background, the historical background uh, to the founding of the church in Thessalonica and some of the circumstances uh, behind what Paul talks about in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. So we read some of these verses last Sabbath evening. We want to read them again just now. Acts 17, reading from verse 1. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. But when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Amen. This is the word of the Lord.
Well, please turn now in God's Word to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and to the first five verses of that chapter. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, page 1188 in the Church Bible. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. And just before we read those verses, let me just quickly recap on what we saw last Sabbath evening at our pre-communion service in verses 17 to 20 of chapter 2. We have been thinking about the Apostle Paul's love for the believers in Thessalonica. Uh, That's what he is conveying. That's what he's writing about in this whole passage He's reassuring these young believers, uh, these newborn Christians, in the face of the slander of their opponents, uh, their enemies in Thessalonica, those Jews that we have been reading about in Acts 17. uh, They have been accusing Paul of not caring about his converts, these new believers. They've been twisting the facts to make their case. We've read of how Paul and Silas uh, were smuggled away by the church. They had to leave Thessalonica in a hurry because of the trouble that these jealous Jews had stirred up for them. They accused the missionaries of trying to start a political revolution, uh, rallying the people to this rival king called Jesus instead of Caesar. And for that reason, the church had spirited Paul and Silas out of the city by night. But the weeks have passed, the months have passed, and Paul and Silas haven't returned. And their enemies have been using this to slander them. It seems that they were saying something along these lines. You see? You see what these men are like? They've forgotten all about you. They just used you. And now they have dropped you at the first sign of any trouble. They don't care about you. They don't love you. They don't have any interest in you at all. And in these, uh, in these verses, Paul is reassuring the Thessalonians that that is not the case. That nothing could be further from the truth. And he defends himself by speaking about how excruciating it was to have to leave Thessalonica so quickly in the first place. He's told them that he hasn't stopped thinking about them and praying for them ever since. He tells them that he has tried many times to come back and to see them, and he has only been prevented because of the activity of the devil himself. These Thessalonians mean more to him than anything. He says, you are my hope, my joy, my crown, my glory. And we thought especially last Lord's Day evening about how the explanation behind Paul's deep love for this church is to be traced to the Lord Jesus Christ's love for his church. Paul is following Christ's example and pattern. Because the Son of God says about you and about me, about us, his people, that we are his hope 
and his joy and his crown of boasting and his glory. Paul's love for the Thessalonians that we see in these verses is just a pale, pale shadow of Christ's love for these believers. Well, we have seen Paul's love described in words in those verses at the end of chapter 2. But now in chapter 3, verses 1 to 5, we see it expressed in action. We've heard it described in words, but now we see it expressed in action. So let's read verses 1 to 5 of 1 Thessalonians 3. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker, in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. Well, I want to look at these verses uh, just now under three headings. First of all, in verses 1 and 2, Paul's love expressed. Paul's love expressed. Paul's every attempt to return to Thessalonica has been frustrated by Satan's opposition. But Paul is not content to leave it at that. He can't stop thinking about these Thessalonian Christians. I wonder, have you experienced this kind of thing? I'm sure that many of us, if not all of us, have uh, something important, something perhaps difficult uh, or daunting is happening to someone that you love. They're going through something really difficult. Uh, maybe it's an exam or an operation or a big interview or something like that, and you're not able to be with them. Maybe you're stuck at work all day long or you're in another country but you know that they're going through this thing and it's all you can think about. You can't settle to get on with any work. Uh, nothing can distract you. All that is on your mind is what your loved one is going through. You desperately want to know how it's going. And that's the kind of thing that Paul is experiencing and describing here. This is how he's been feeling since he has left Thessalonica. He's constantly trying to figure out how he can get back to the Thessalonians. He lies awake at night, tossing and turning as he tries to figure out how to get round whatever this obstacle is that the devil has cast up that is preventing him. You can imagine him, can't you? 
uh, pacing up and down during the day and, uh, and saying, well, now maybe, maybe this would work. No, no, that's not going to work. Well, what about, what about this then? Could we try this? No, that's, that's not going to work either. He can't get the Thessalonians out of his mind. What's happening to them? Are they all right? Are they standing firm? This is exactly what Paul means when he talks in 2 Corinthians 11:28 about his care for the churches. He says, Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? Well, here's a case study, an illustration of those words. This is how he feels about the Thessalonians, except in this case, Paul doesn't even know if they're falling or not. He doesn't know if they're weak or if they're strong, and he's almost beside himself with concern. You get that sense, don't you, of the pressure building and building and building upon his soul until at last the dam bursts. Verse 1, Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, I have put up with this as long as I can. I can't take it anymore. In fact, he says that twice. He says it again in verse 5. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, he has to do something, even though the solution involves great cost to Paul. What does he do? What's the answer? We sent Timothy. We sent Timothy. I think that's the editorial we. I think Paul means I sent Timothy. Now that may not seem like a big deal, but we need to understand what a huge sacrifice this was for Paul. A huge personal sacrifice. Paul was an extremely gregarious man. Every time we see him in the New Testament, he's always surrounded by people. He he always works as part of a team. It's Paul and Barnabas, and then it's Paul and Silas. It's Paul, Silas, and Timothy. There are many, many references in the New Testament in his letters and in the book of Acts to his co-workers, his fellow laborers, dozens of names of men and women who labored with him in the gospel. And that's just the ones that we have uh, heard about, the ones that are mentioned in the New Testament. This was a man who hated to be alone, who hated to be isolated. Uh, That's why the cry from his heart uh, to Timothy, do your best to come to me quickly when he's in the prison cell at the end of his life and everyone has deserted him and he's on his own. Uh, that, That would be hard for anyone, but especially for someone like Paul. He doesn't believe in rogue Uh, lone ranger missionaries who go out by themselves and they they don't work with anybody and they're not accountable to anybody. Uh, He believes very, very strongly in working as part of a team. For some people, 
it wouldn't be that great a hardship to be left alone, to send off your fellow worker and, and to be left alone. Uh, there are people who really enjoy their own company. Paul was not one of those men. And all the more because he's going to Athens by himself. He's going to be in Athens all alone. And Athens is going to be extremely hard for him. Athens might still be a holiday destination for sightseers. It was in Paul's day too, but for Paul, taking in the sights in Athens caused him intense spiritual anguish and pain. We read Acts seventeen sixteen. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Very strong language. It's hard to capture in English. His spirit was provoked within him. Uh, the, the word that's used there in Greek, actually, is the word from which we get our English word, paroxysm. Uh, he, he was in a paroxysm of anguish and distress because of the things that he saw in Athens, the idolatry, the, the, the paganism, the unbelief of the people of that city. And this difficult ordeal was made ten times harder, a hundred times harder, because he was doing it alone. We sent Timothy we left we were left behind at Athens alone and he's doing it for the sake of the Thessalonians for their good he chooses to endure this loneliness and this isolation and this deprivation because it means that they will be helped and that's all that matters and so at great personal cost he sends Timothy to minister to those new believers in Thessalonica. Paul's love expressed. Then in verses 2 to 5, we have Timothy's mission explained. Timothy's mission explained. Really, this isn't so much a second point as a sub-point of the first point. This is part of the expression of Paul's love, but I thought it might help to divide it up a little more. So Timothy's mission explained, verses 2 to 5, what is it precisely that Timothy is going to do in Thessalonica? Because the mission objectives that Timothy is given by Paul show us the focus of his love. It helps us to see what his particular concerns are for these believers. And there are at least three. First of all, in verse 2, to establish and exhort them in their faith. To establish them and to exhort them in their faith. Verse 2, we sent Timothy to establish and exhort you in your faith. Timothy is going to come to Thessalonica and he's going to give them more instruction about how to live as Christians. And that's necessary because you may remember the Thessalonians had just recently been converted out of idolatry. Uh, Paul says in chapter 1 verse 9, you turned to God from serving idols. They're just Christians a few weeks. 
a few months perhaps by this stage. They need plenty of discipling. There's so many things that they needed to learn. So many things that they didn't understand about living for the Lord Jesus Christ. And so they need to be established. They need to be grounded more firmly in the things that they already knew. But it's more than that. It's not just reinforcing the basics. They also need to be exhorted. They need to be established and they need to be exhorted. They need to be called. They need to be admonished to the right kind of living that the gospel demands. Most of chapter 4 and chapter 5 of this letter uh, is exhortation. Uh, the, The whole of the two chapters are basically Paul giving one exhortation after another after another to the Thessalonians. So that shows us the kind of exhortations that Timothy would have been giving when he went to Thessalonica, exhorting them to sexual purity, for example, and brotherly love, and working hard at their everyday jobs. All of those things are involved in exhorting these Christians. So Timothy is going to Thessalonica to establish them, to exhort them in their faith. Paul loves these Christians, and so he wants them to be spiritually strong Christians. And so they need established, and they need to be exhorted. And then a second objective, a a second mission objective in verses 3 and 4 is to prepare the Thessalonians for suffering. To prepare them for suffering. And this was particularly urgent for the Thessalonians. They needed to be strengthened. They needed to be encouraged because of the ongoing persecution that they were facing from the Jews. The Jews back there, those jealous Jews in Thessalonica, they were still trying to cause as much trouble for the church as they possibly could. And so Paul says in verse 3, he recognizes that there's a very real danger that these Christians will be, as he puts it, moved by these afflictions. These afflictions are coming like a storm or like a tidal wave. Uh, And there's every possibility that unless they are established, they will be moved. They will be scattered by these afflictions. Now, Paul himself, he says in verse 4, we warned you when we were with you that you would suffer for being Christians. We kept telling you this. We labored the point because it's so important that you understand it. We told you this would happen. But it's one thing, isn't it, to know the theory. It's quite another thing to experience it. And so they need encouragement and they need instruction. And that's why Paul sends Timothy to give them a biblical perspective on their afflictions, to help them to understand the suffering that they're going through It's the kind of thing that Paul says at the end of verse 3 here. He says, all Christians are destined for trials. You yourselves know that we are destined for this. This This is part and parcel of normal Christian living. We're destined for trials. It's not that the Thessalonians... 
Timothy presumably is going to say to, 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 the, to the Thessalonians when he gets there. It's not that you've done something really bad and God is angry with you and he sent these afflictions to punish you. It's not that the devil is winning and that he is stronger than God in Thessalonica. It's not that the Jewish opponents are crafty and clever and they have outsmarted God and that they have got the upper hand. No, these things are destined for all Christians. Suffering is part and parcel of the normal Christian life. This is his plan, the Lord's plan that's working out here in Thessalonica, not the devil's. And he has a good purpose he is a wise purpose. Just because you don't understand it and see it at the moment doesn't matter. That doesn't mean that it's not there. So Timothy is going to establish and exhort them in their faith. He's going to prepare them for suffering. And then thirdly, he's going to find out how the church is doing. He's going to find out how the church is doing. The main purpose in sending Timothy to Thessalonica is for the Thessalonians' good. It's for their benefit. It's to strengthen them. It's to encourage them. But it is also, verse 5, to set Paul's mind at rest. I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. So Timothy is on a fact-finding mission as well. Go and find out, Timothy, are they standing firm? Are they compromising? Have they abandoned the faith? Are they discouraged? Paul recognizes this is a golden opportunity for the devil. The missionaries are away. The church is vulnerable. The devil could get in there very, very quickly and very sneakily, and he could tempt them. I want to know, Timothy, if he succeeded. Timothy's mission explained to establish and exhort them in their faith, to prepare them for suffering, and to find out how the church is doing. And this too, it's all part of Paul's love for the Thessalonians. I do care about you, brothers and sisters, he's saying. I need to know these things. I want, I'm prepared to pay any price. I can't come myself. I would if I could, but I can't come myself. And so I'm going to be left here alone. I'm going to send Timothy, and he is going to do what I can't do because I love you so much. Paul's love expressed. Timothy's mission explained. And then thirdly and lastly, Paul's love explained. Paul's love explained. So Paul does whatever it takes to help these young believers, even at great personal cost to himself. He wants to see them established he wants to see them going from strength to strength spiritually. Why? Where did Paul get this idea from that a pastor should make personal sacrifices for his people's spiritual good? That's what he's doing. 
Where, where did he get the idea that he should sacrifice something to bring them blessing? Who is he imitating? Well, you know the answer. Isn't this just what the Lord Jesus Christ did? His whole life, his whole mission was about sacrificing himself, emptying himself for the sake of his people. We were thinking about this, and perhaps you were too, in the home group on Wednesday evening. How he came from heaven to earth to live a perfect life in a fallen world, surrounded by sin and sinners. You imagine that? You can't imagine that. Because we're used to it. We're acclimatized to sin. The idea of Jesus coming from heaven to earth and just living, just existing in a fallen world, that doesn't seem all that terrible to us. It's a beautiful world. It's a, yes, we know it's a fallen world, but it's, it's a lovely place to live. And yes, there are places that you wouldn't want to live, perhaps, in the middle of a horrible uh, slum surrounded by drug dealers and paramilitaries and all kinds of horrible, horrible things. But, I mean, most people are kind and nice and good neighbors. It's hard for us to grasp, isn't it, what it's like to live in a fallen world because we are sinners and we're acclimatized to sin. We're used to it. We hardly notice sin in ourselves and in other people. You've got to remember it was entirely different for the Holy Son of God. We don't often have this experience now that smoking is banned indoors in most public places, but perhaps you can remember what it's like to go from uh, the fresh air outside into a room that's filled with cigarette smoke. And you know how it chokes the back of your throat and it stings your eyes and it's deeply, deeply unpleasant because you're not used to it. And none of the people in the room who are smoking, they don't seem bothered by it at all. In fact, they seem to like it. The Son of God came from the pure and holy air of heaven into a world that was enveloped with a suffocating thick atmosphere of sin and death. Huge sacrifice just to come from heaven to earth before he's done anything else, just to, to, to be born into this fallen, cursed world, to be surrounded by sinners all his life, wrestling with temptation every day, not just three times in the wilderness, but every moment of every day of the 30 years or so of his life, wrestling with temptation when he was a child, as his younger siblings, half-siblings, were being difficult. They were taunting Jesus, fighting over a toy or all these things that children do, being mean and horrible and spiteful 
And yet never once does Jesus lash out with his tongue or with his fist. And then when he's a teenager, the same age as some of you teenagers here today, he kept himself absolutely pure in his body and in his thoughts. He never, ever once disrespected Mary or Joseph, even when they were in the wrong. And they must have often been in the wrong. And yet he submitted to them in the Lord because they were his parents. He never showed off, never gave in to pride because of his superior knowledge and understanding and his perfect righteousness. He never looked down in self-righteousness on anyone. That went on for 30 years, living in a fallen world surrounded by sinners, being assailed constantly by one temptation after another. But then, of course, the three years of his public ministry were intense years of unrelenting labor as he preached and healed constantly. And and both of those things, the Gospels tell us, exhausted him physically and emotionally and spiritually. Remember how often he had no time to eat? He spent whole nights in prayer. He didn't have his own home, didn't have his own place. He had to bear with his dull, unresponsive, unbelieving disciples. Judas betrays him. Peter denies him. They all abandon him. He's facing relentless opposition, merciless opposition from ruthless enemies who are watching his every move. They're dissecting every word, writing it down, looking for the smallest little contradiction, ready to pounce on him, ready to use it against him, conspiring to kill him. And that goes on for three years, that intense public ministry. And then supremely, it all comes to that terrible and wonderful climax as he demonstrated his love for his people by sacrificing himself, laying down his life for the sheep. Until the cross in those three hours of darkness at the cross, up until that point, in all these other things that we've just thought about, at least, at least he had the presence of his Father to comfort him. Everyone else was against him. All these enemies, his own family didn't believe in him. They thought he was mad. They came to take him away. He was called a drunkard. He was called a glutton. He was called a demon-possessed man. But at least he had the presence of his Father to comfort him. John eight twenty nine. Jesus said, He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. But at the cross, in those three hours of darkness, his Father forsook him. And the Lord Jesus willingly chose to be left alone on the cross. He chose that. 
to be left alone, not in Athens, but on the cross, to bear the dereliction and the curse and the wrath of God, because he's the Passover lamb who takes away the sins of the world. And he's giving his body and he's giving his blood so that he can feed us with the bread of life. He chooses to be left alone to face the wrath of the triune God. And why does he do it? He does it to establish his church. Same reason that Paul sends Timothy to Thessalonica, to establish the church for the good of his people, to win for us not just the forgiveness of sins, but every spiritual blessing, so that we have all that we could ever need for life and for godliness, to establish us, to establish you in faith and hope and love and obedience. He pays this ultimate sacrifice of himself. He chooses to be left alone at the cross to free you from guilt and fear and worry and death and hell, to give you access to the throne of grace in prayer so that he can send to you his Holy Spirit from heaven to dwell within your heart, a far greater co-worker than any Timothy. The Spirit who dwells within us and exhorts us and sanctifies us and establishes us and enables us to live the life that He has called us to. Doesn't Christ's sacrifice for His people's spiritual good explain, make sense of Paul's readiness to make this sacrifice, any sacrifice, for the good of the Thessalonians. As an under-shepherd, he's following the example and the pattern of the chief shepherd. And it's a challenge to you and to me as well, isn't it? We follow a Savior who did all of this for us out of love for you and for me. I wonder what sacrifices we might make for his people. Good to go away and think, wouldn't it? How can I express the love of Christ in my actions this week? Here's how Paul did it. And here's why Paul did it. Because he was following the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I want to just look with you uh, briefly uh, before we come to the table at uh, one word in this passage, uh, this whole passage in chapter 3 of 1 Thessalonians that is uh, perhaps one of the key words, one of the most important words in the whole passage. It's the word faith. Faith. And the word faith is used here five times. In verse 2, Timothy is sent to Thessalonica to encourage the Thessalonians in faith. In verse 5, 
Timothy is sent to find out about the Thessalonians' faith. In verse 6, Timothy brings back good news to Paul about the Thessalonians' faith and love. Verse 7, Paul is encouraged because of the Thessalonians' faith. And then in verse 10, he wants to supply what is lacking in their faith. In other words, it seems pretty clear, doesn't it, that the faith of the Thessalonians is a key issue for Paul. His most important concern, his all-consuming concern is, are they standing firm in their faith? Is their faith strong? Is their faith growing? That's what he wants to know above all else. And the news that their faith is intact is the thing that brings him more joy and gladness and happiness than anything else. Faith, faith, faith. It's all about faith. Why all this fuss about faith? What's the big deal about faith? Well, it's because this is the only thing that really matters. It's not whether or not the Thessalonians are being oppressed and intimidated and persecuted. Paul has warned them that that will happen as a matter of course. That's to be expected. The main thing is not whether or not the Thessalonians are financially secure. The most important thing to Paul is not whether or not the Thessalonians are in good physical health. It's not that those things don't matter but they are relatively unimportant. What he is really concerned about, what he is really exercised about, is their faith, their spiritual health. Are they still believing the truth? Are they still trusting Jesus Christ alone for salvation? Are they still trusting the Lord with their circumstances, these difficult painful circumstances that they're going through. Now, of course, faith by itself is dead, as James says. And so true saving faith inevitably produces fruit. And Paul is glad to hear that that has been the case with the Thessalonians. Uh, verse 6, their faith and their love. Love is the outworking of faith. Love is the proof that faith is there. Love for God and love for man. That sums up, doesn't it, the whole law, all the commandments. And that's why Paul says to the Galatians in Galatians 5 verse 6, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. But faith is fundamental. Faith is basic. And so this, this morning, is the only question that really is relevant as we think about coming to the Lord's table. Do you have faith? And it's not any kind of faith. It's faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what saving faith is. Are you a believer? Do you believe the truths that God has revealed in the Bible? Do you believe every word 
in this book? And are you trusting Jesus Christ alone for salvation? Not putting your trust in anything that you've done or that anyone else has done for you apart from Jesus Christ. And if you can say, yes, I have faith in Jesus Christ, faith in Jesus Christ alone, well then, Jesus himself welcomes you to come to his table. And I know that many of you, most of us perhaps, are going to be saying, I am a believer, but I'm not what I ought to be. And of course you're not. Of course you're not. And you never will be in this life. I'd be seriously worried if anyone was saying this morning, I am all that I ought to be as a believer. Of course you're not. None of us is. Every believer in this world is a work in progress. That's why Paul says in verse 10, he wanted to go to Thessalonica to supply what was lacking in their faith. They did have faith. They did have true faith, but they didn't have perfect faith. There were still many gaps in their understanding. Their trust was still weak in many ways. They needed to be instructed. They needed to be established. They needed to be exhorted. They needed to be corrected. Yes, there were things that were lacking in their faith, but that did not mean for a moment that their faith was not real. And that's true for every one of us today. Do you have faith? Not do you have perfect faith. Do you have faith, even as small as a mustard seed, Jesus says. As long as you put that true faith in Jesus Christ, then you're welcome to come to his table today. And remember the Lord's Supper, this meal itself is a way of strengthening your faith so that your faith will grow and get bigger and stronger. So come and eat and drink and receive grace and strength from the Lord. Amen. Please turn to 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 8. Chapter 3, verse 8. Because it seems to me that this verse sums up all that Paul is saying in this whole passage. He describes his feelings when he hears Timothy's report that the Thessalonians are doing well. And he says in response to that, in verse 8, For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. Now we live. Now, of course, Paul is using picture language here when he says, now we live. But it's a very strong picture that he uses, isn't it? What does he mean? What is he saying when he says, now we live? Well, surely he's saying that his whole life is bound up in some sense with these Christians that he's only known for a few weeks in Thessalonica. He has invested himself in them. He has linked his welfare and his happiness to theirs. Again, it's 2 Corinthians 11, 29, isn't it? Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? 
the positive is true as well, isn't it? Who is doing well and I am not overjoyed? If these believers are not doing well, Paul says, it's as though my life is ebbing away. But now that he has heard that they are prospering and thriving, it has given him a whole new lease of life. He is full of joy and thanksgiving and energy. Now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. And again, it's worth asking the question, isn't it? Why should that be? Why did Paul get so personally involved in his congregation's spiritual welfare? Why did he feel that as a pastor, his heart should be tied up with the spiritual wealth, health and welfare of those under his care. Surely that is a very draining way to live. Much, much easier to keep a clinical, professional distance, a, a, a detached attitude to your congregation. Don't get so involved, Paul. Don't take it so much to heart if they're not doing well spiritually. You're only making yourself vulnerable by exposing yourself in this way, by binding your life to their lives in this way. Why do you do it, Paul? Where did you get the idea that a pastor's happiness should be bound up in his people's spiritual welfare? And again, by now, we all know the answer, don't we? Paul's attitude to the Thessalonians here is just a pale reflection of the Lord's attitude to us, his sheep. A good pastor's heart and life are meant to be bound up in how his people are doing spiritually because that's what the Lord's heart is like. A Christian you remember, is someone who is in Christ. That is the fundamental definition of a Christian in the New Testament. That's the, the favorite description of a Christian. That's the phrase that's used more than any other. A Christian is someone who is in Christ, someone who has been united to Christ. Their life and Christ's life have been inextricably meshed together. Christ has willingly chosen to tie his life to your life if you belong to him. And that was the truth, wasn't it, that was so indelibly etched on Paul's mind on the Damascus Road right at the beginning of his Christian experience. In Acts 9, verse 4, he fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? You're persecuting me, Saul. We need to say it reverently. We need to say it carefully. But the Lord's happiness is tied to us. What happens to Christ's people happens to Christ himself. What hurts us hurts him because our lives are bound up together with him. 
Paul makes that explicit, doesn't he? In Colossians 3, 3 and 4, he says, You died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. That is tremendously encouraging, isn't it? It's tremendously challenging, but it is a wonderful, encouraging truth. The Son of God is not remote. He's not aloof from you as your pastor. He knows each one of us individually, and He deals with us individually because your life is bound up with His life. You are united to Him as close as it is possible to be, closer than it is possible for any two human beings to be. It's absolutely incredible, isn't it? And this meal that we have just shared speaks of this sharing of life, because at the cross, Jesus Christ bound Himself to His people, His life to their life, willingly, in covenant, through His blood. He poured out His life unto death and rose again for us so that we might live in Him. His life is our life. Amen. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we give You our thanks again for the blessings that You have showered upon us and especially the blessings of this past hour and a half. We thank you, O God, for uh, all that you have given to us in Jesus Christ. We thank you that, uh, amongst other things, most of all, uh, along with the forgiveness of sins, he has obtained for us the right to approach you together in worship. And we pray, Lord God, that our worship will be pleasing to you and that it will be a blessing to us. We pray that you will strengthen our faith as we go out from this place. We pray that you will draw us closer to yourself. We pray that we will be all the more conscious of the love of Christ for each one of us. We pray that your Holy Spirit will continue to shed that love abroad in our hearts, that we would know it and experience it and feel it more and more. And we pray that as a result, we will love you back more and that we will love one another more and that we will demonstrate our love by walking in obedience to all that you have commanded. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.